제시카 외동딸 일리노이 시카고 과선배는 김진모 그는 이사촌 Look what you made me do. It's the Taylor Swift podcast from the Twin Geeks. <laughs> We didn't get enough of it with cats, I guess. No. I mean, uh, she dropped a lot of catnip on the Twin Geeks, and since then we've just been crazy for the girl. And who could blame us? There's a new Netflix documentary called Miss Americana that everyone's talking about. Are they? I, I haven't talked about it. I don't even know what it is. I talked about it with my wife once. Someone's talked about it. Yeah, I guess that counts. Anyway, I guess, that tell- talk- I guess that's talking about it. Yeah, well, to talk about it now. Tell me what it is, because I have zero idea. Uh, well, it's about this gal, Taylor Swift. She makes some music, and it's uh, documenting um, some of her career about uh, how she was a real people pleaser, and then how she wasn't. It's kind of odd to make a documentary about someone no one's ever heard of. Taylor Swift? Yeah. I know. Who the hell is that? She's a country artist from Nashville. Aren't all country artists from Nashville? They are. And she's just one of them. So I don't know why they... Um, there's some stuff about how she moves away from her music, whoever she is and whatever that is, politically, and how she's able to like channel like Dixie Chicks and be like, okay, I'm going to get everyone to vote, and how voting numbers really turned up higher whenever she put out an announcement. So I guess uh, that didn't help, but uh, that's good. I mean, it... It makes sense. That this seems like a logical conclusion to me. You know, big celebrity says you should go out and vote for people, particularly this candidate, and then all of their fo- followers, their their cult, go out and do that in droves. That's not uncommon. I'm a big, <laughs> I'm a big fan of like the MTVization of politics. Like at Rock the Vote was a lot of fun. Remember the Clinton thing? I don't know if you remember, but sort of. But I mean, look where that's got us. Now we have the host of Celebrity Apprentice as the president, and it's not going well. <laughs> Yeah, we didn't mean for them to become our politicians. They were just supposed to help us get to them. Well, that was going back uh, as far as you can draw even as easily as Reagan, you know, who was an actor in classic yeah, Hollywood. Yeah. A minor actor. Like, nobody actually likes the films Reagan was in, but... No, but, but I mean, there was enough where you could put him on posters and be like, he's a Hollywood adjacent. Yeah, no, he, he totally was, and that's easily how he got a lot of the press and nomination to get there, and he used his actor charisma to charm republicans forever and now they want to put his face on mount rushmore despite you know (laughs) all the awful terrible things he did yeah absolutely especially like uh, the inner city communities there's so much bad that he did but uh the ignoring of the the aids crisis throughout the 80s oh yeah yeah i mean now we have like an opioid epidemic which affects white people so we're very concerned about addiction but you know now now that it affects white people you're right Um, now now i'm concerned about it yeah, I mean, now addiction is a hot-button issue, but uh, back then, no. Oh, it was the um, same thing with, like, the, the AIDS stuff as well. Like, Reagan actually started doing stuff when someone he knew was afflicted by it. He's like, oh, shit, now it affects me in a personal way. Of course. I mean, we just got to get politicians that want to get ahead of it. And, this is uh, now the, the politics podcast by the Twin Geeks. Yeah, everything's going well <laughs> in Iowa. And, um, yeah, oh, right, what a uh, shit show. Should we talk right. about movies? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess that's that's what we do here, right? <laughs> Yeah, so this uh, premiered at Sundance. We could go a little bit into Sundance. I think we have a lot more Oscars to talk about as far as seasonal events, though. 
yeah, that's coming up this weekend, and we're going to do a deep dive into what we think is going on with that for this weekend. But l- tell me a little bit about what's going on at Sundance, because so, I'm not keeping up. I think uh, it's one of the more diverse Sundance festivals. It's always been a diverse festival, but now it has about 50% black representation on the people making the films, which is fantastic. But uh, there weren't as many buys this year, because a lot of the movies were already represented coming in. So uh, a lot of buys happened pre-festival, and... Uh, there were some big ones. Um, there was the uh, big deal with the, um, what was it called? The uh, Boys State, which is the, speaking of political, it's Apple's <laughs> thing where a bunch of young boys get together. And uh, every year, I didn't even know about this. Like every year they congregate and have like a representation of what the political process looks like. So it documents that whole weekend of it. Yeah, it's almost as if we can't escape politics because it's such a forefront of the American you know, discussion at the moment. Big uh, yeah. topic to, to tackle. Everyone's concerned about politics. I don't know why. I mean, I can't think of a single reason. So uh, there's a the big bio of the movie with nothing to do with politics. Well, it's hard to say because like every time you talk about movies, every movie is political, right? Every art piece. I but, mean, uh, m- maybe not the Marvel movies, but yeah, I guess I they mean, I guess they kind of are. Maybe like Captain Marvel is because it's like sucking the dick of the military but yeah, i mean they have tiebacks no matter no matter how far you have to trace it they have support politically uh they have ties to trump everything's trump um yeah this is the uh, world we live in it is uh i think the one that's kind of a standout is palm springs which is the andy sandberg lonely island movie which got uh 17 million five hundred and sixty nine cents making it uh by 69 cents <laughs> the biggest su- sundance buyout of all time that's great. Is is funny. I just can't help thinking about that. I'm gonna oust you on the podcast here as well because you PayPal me sixty nine cents for no reason the other day. <laughs> I, I just I, I woke up to the transaction. I'm like, what the hell is this? And it was it's a specific number as well. I'm like, is this a joke? You... <laughs> I I think it's funnier that it was unintentional to. Uh, I, I don't know just... how you unintentionally send me money, but next time, can you make it more? That would be I awesome. Know. It could have been sixty nine dollars that I would really be in underwater, but I, I would cover my you know all the times I've paid you for the podcast here in the past. That'd be nice. <laughs> um, there's a yeah, but this uh, Palm Springs is like a we just had Groundhog Day as well. You could listen back to last week's uh, the Edge of Tomorrow podcast, but uh, this is another Groundhog Day movie, and it was the biggest at some dance all time. Well, I know you're excited about that. What what exactly is the the gimmick this time? So I I really don't want to read onto it, honestly. I know that it's about marriages and what it's like waking up with the same person every day, and it has a Groundhog Day aspect. So that's really enough for me. I feel very positive about seeing this this year. I kind of imagine, like in my head, it just makes me think of the uh, the breakfast scene in Citizen mm. Kane, where it's, like, showing the deterioration of the marriage just over, like, this one conversation effectively strung out over years. You know, that, yeah. that, that great sequence. If you could just make a whole movie out of that, that would be pretty cool, I guess. That's what I thought of first. I don't know why. I think it'll be, like, less marriage story and more pro-marriage, though. I feel like it's going to have an alternative take. It looks so bright and cheery. I can't imagine it having, like, a dismal ending that sends people home unhappy and then they spent that much on it you know oh, it's, the, it's the lonely island guys you know yeah, they're they're so much cool fun and creative did you see pop star when that came out yeah i know it didn't do well at the box office but it's gained a big cult following since and you know it's had a, a lucrative home video release 
Uh, I I heard people like it. And I don't know what the market is on this too, because like this is like a split. I can't remember if it was. Oh, it's a neon uh, Hulu. So oh, neon is they're doing great stuff. They they released the film we're talking about this week. That's right, and um, Neon, of course, I don't know what's in it for them, but I think Hulu put up the line share of the money, so Disney also cultivating like a more PG-13 R market around that, which is interesting. They have money to spend. So. Yeah, well, that's that's good. I hope that Hulu doesn't die. Um, yeah. I mean, not, not that it's a great platform compared to others, but I think it offers something that... Uh, obviously, you can't get on like Disney Plus, and what I kind of hope more so is that I, I keep using them for like reality and game shows and uh, yeah. cooking stuff that they they put up that nobody else does. It's how I watch my Iron Chef and you know Total Wipeout shows and such at night, and I enjoy. I know <laughs> I really enjoyed our talk when we had uh, what was our cooking movie that we did? Chef, we did Chef. We talked about yeah. Chef. And we talked about like Good Eats and and stuff, and I think Cutthroat Kitchen we mentioned. I think if you're a foodie, things. that's probably the best podcast we've done uh, until we get to <laughs> Tam Popo. <laughs> Eventually, maybe. <laughs> Someday you'll see it. Um, Possibly not. Well, what else do we have? A uh, new movie-wise, uh, um, went and saw. I saw Gretel and Hansel. So as you can expect by the name, like that flip, it's pretty obvious that they're just uh, going to make it a female uh, or a women-focused movie, and that. Um, I'll have a review on the site here, but I think it's a pretty good inversion, and it sounds so obvious, and it pretty much is, and it sticks closer to the fairy tale than I think different versions of it have. Uh, do they still drop breadcrumbs so they know their way home? Um, not exactly. I think it's, <laughs> um, I don't know, they're like off wandering without their parents, and Oz Perkins, as you noted to me in the review, he's done a lot of, uh, female facing uh lead roles here yeah i i uh i looked around a little bit for for him when i was uh doing the review or the edit of the review here and i noticed i'm like huh i guess he has this fixation on female-centric stories and protagonists which is interesting i think for a male director uh and especially you could tell from the names which i really appreciate gretel and hansel and then the pretty thing that lived in the house and the black coats daughter i think was the other one Black Coat's Daughter, which is generally high acclaim among horror fans, I know. The reviews for his film tend to be somewhat middling, but he's yeah. he's got a, a pretty nice cult around him. And of course, being the son of uh, Anthony Perkins doesn't hurt either. This has a lot of warm, nice shots. It's very well shot and technically good. Um, I don't think it has a lot of added new value. Uh, I think you can enjoy it because it doesn't have a revenge or... Um, there's like two angles they go for horror with women, which is revenge and scream queen. So it's nice that it's just an empowerment story in a in a horror uh, rapper. Um, it doesn't have a lot of weird um, genre value, I guess I should say. That's I don't know. I I guess that's good, but also I, for you, I know yeah. you you greatly value genre value. You know, you like the yeah. you like your horror movies to be pretty horror-y. Yeah, I like a little bit of horror in it. And it has uh, Sophia Lillis, who we'll know from... Uh, she's Beverly in It, and she's coming up in I'm Not Okay With This, which is a new Netflix series that looks really good, too. So uh, she's she's doing stuff after It, which is good. Cool. We like rising stars, young actors and actresses. Especially when they're like so committed to genre, and they're you know you can see that she's already carving a path with like sharp objects, It, and... 
and Gretel and Gretel. Hansel that she's doing like literary horror and it's really cool. I'm pretty excited about her future. It's great. So uh mild recommendation, enthusiastic recommendation. Yeah. Uh yeah. I'd say mildly enthusiastic, but also <laughs> cautiously optimistic that there's not a lot that happens. And uh, mm-hmm. I think you get the you know the story beats of Gretel and Hansel. You know what's going to happen in this movie. There won't be any surprises. Um yeah. Then the other one this week that I went in for a press screener on was uh, the rhythm section with uh, Blake Lively. Mm. And uh, how was that? That was pretty middling to kind of (laughs) bad. It feels like an airport novel in that you pick it up and you could spend a little bit of time with it, but there's really nothing to take away from it. That's a shame. I know you told me you struggled with the review for this one. (laughs) Uh, You know, these films that it feels like you have nothing to say about or, you know, it's so bland or been there uh you know it can be hard to crank out 200 300 words or whatever however and many it's words. too bad i mean it's i don't know it's you've seen everything in this before i mean no matter what you've seen you've seen it all before and reed Murano, she's a pretty new director but she's been a pretty good dp on a lot of projects and uh, she should have a good cinema cinematographic eye but uh, i don't really feel it in this uh, she's done some good work on like Handmaid's Tale, uh, especially. So she could create sharp, vivid images, but uh, sometimes I think she's too distracted with her image and kind of has forgotten to carve out a really interesting story. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I know you get the review for that, so for, for more complete thoughts, uh, you know, the, the ones you've exhausted that you were able to figure out, uh, keep an eye out for that on the site. Yeah, uh, there's going to be plenty more coming. I think I'm going to have a much more interesting week of film viewing than the last few so we're in february that's almost good movie season you feel like this this past january was a better january than last year i know you generally liked uh uh, colorado space was kind of like the big one for this this last month i would probably say and that seemed to stand out more than anything from last january and a special note bad boys has made more than any january movie ever has so it wasn't even bad at the box office yeah, so maybe bad movie season is not as bad as we think. We'll see <laughs> maybe, how it goes. <laughs> yeah, we might just start getting some holdovers there, like action movies that don't care about awards. That's always the hope, right? That a horror or action movie that doesn't need award consideration could slip into that late slot. But uh... Yeah, I think that's a, an ideal alternative. This week we have the Oscars on TV, which is... You know, it it's like an accumulation of everything we've gone through the last few months. I'm ready to move forward. Yeah, this this Oscars looks much better. I think we're much more satisfied with this Oscars than last year. I think we did a lot of bitching on the podcast last year with all the nominations and everything that was overlooked. Uh, not unfairly. I'm still a little bitter about that. But this year, may, maybe they've won me back a little bit. And the promise of no host makes the ceremony sound like a much easier to digest uh, experience as well. Sure. Um, there's always the thing where some of the Oscars were fine last year, but all we can see in hindsight is Green Book and Bo Rap. Like, I can't tell you any of the other wins, especially. Uh, yeah. Off the top of my head, I can't even exactly remember. I just remember a lot of the snubs as well. Like, we were yeah. all very, very upset about you were never really here being passed yeah. over. Uh, That's the one I think of all the time. Yeah. Um, but then there's the Wells film, too, which probably needed some recognition. Just a, I think, an 
I mean, it should have won for best editing, honestly. I think that that would be fair. And it's yeah. not like uh, Bob Morawski, the editor of the film, you know, is not uh, a Hollywood person. You know, he won for editing The Hurt Locker, um, you know. So I, th- I think that's certainly something that's deserving of accolades. But it's the kind of thing that's passed over. And, of course, the Academy is internally battling with their, you know, uh, hatred of Netflix, even though they've given Netflix a huge roster here this time around with, you know, The Irishman and Marriage Story and a couple other, you know, big names here. Two popes. So at, at the time of this recording, we've had the the producers, the, the WAG, the SAG, we've had all kinds of awards. We had the BAFTAs and um, we had the Golden Globes already and we have this moved up Oscar season just a week from the BAFTAs. So it's really compacted and I'm really enjoying that part of it. I'm glad I don't have two more weeks or months to linger on all these movies. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know me and you have both gone through here and made our own kind of predictions about what's going to win based on our uh, expert uh, abilities to understand the Academy and their cynical nature. Yeah. Though, though we do have uh, quite the differing opinions on what's going to win, and I think that is going to make for some interesting discussion here about what deserves to win, what is more likely to win, and, uh, you know, the precedence of what has won before, kind of uh, forecasting what we'll see on this Sunday. So, should we focus on what we think that the Academy will do first? Well, that's what I've I've selected for my ballot here, yeah. because, uh, and and I've done this in the past every time, uh, you know, I like to, to wager between friends and such, you know, outside of things. Not, not a whole lot or anything, but uh, I... I to toot my own horn a little, I think I've gotten pretty good at predicting what the Academy is going to pick. Though last year, I'll admit, I, I did not know, I did not realize how low they would sink in their recognition. <laughs> so, and thank God I didn't bet on anything last year because I would have lost money. It's really hard with their preferential ballot to really know what they're going to do since they made that rule like 10 years ago. Uh, it's yeah. hard to see through it. I know I'm well, more of a fan than you are of having the 10 movies represented here. Yeah, at least for some of it. Again, I, our arguments for it, I see both sides there. Uh, but, yeah. you know, my, my approach to it is the more cynical side that, yeah, when you open up the roster more, it does give the opportunity for a greater variety of, uh, you know, films and representation for, like, women directors and such to be recognized. But it's, uh, you know, you're still depending on the the Academy to recognize those over other things. If they've passed them over, what's clearly more deserving, like, uh, you know, like we talked about with you were never really here, or even people like Greta Gerwig this year, who's not nominated for directing for little women. Um, you know, what are the chances that they're going to do the right thing? Even with more, they should do it right the first time. Really? Yeah, you'd think so. Um, I mean, there's only, the thing is, this is a strong and unusual year. Most years, I don't think we really need 10 slots, but this year there's only two at drop. Yeah, it's uh, and that's the other thing is that this year is also a little different than past ones because there is such a strong, valid representation across the board. I think the Academy did actually do a fairly good job of representing the best of the best this year. Yeah. Uh, of course, still with some reservations, you know, as to be Lighthouse. expected. Yeah, <laughs> Light- Lighthouse. Gems. Lighthouse has, has won here. Uncut Gems got passed over sadly, and I think a lot of that has to do with the you know, problem of a December release, you know, so many people didn't go see it, so the people who voted on the <laughs> nominations, you know, just skipped over it. 
I think and, it's also like the Netflix of it all because I mean they've already gotten in for the two popes and they already gotten in for Irishman and they already gotten in for Marriage Story. I mean, how many can they re- realistically have? Right. Well, if you look at and that's the thing, you know, people point out here, especially if you look at the actor categories here, these are very established and beloved actors for you know yeah. many decades now. Like, if you had to take one out of either category, it'd be really hard. You've got Antonio Banderas, DiCaprio, Adam Driver, Joaquin Phoenix, and Jonathan Price just for the best actor category alone. And so, if you wanted to try and fit in Sandler there, you're like, shit, who do you drop? <laughs> I guess Even- like. Mm, I don't know, Jonathan Price, I guess, because he's not as big of a person, but, you know, he's still a beloved character actor, and, you know... And he's uh, so incredible huge... in that movie. Yeah. Oh, and yeah, and... and that's the thing. You know, it's it's not... It's not an easy swap here, unlike maybe some others no. in the past. Nobody... All of these people, certainly in the Best Actor category, you could say as well, are more deserving than uh, Rami Malek was for Bohemian Rhapsody <laughs> last year. It was very weird that they awarded his teeth and that they came yeah. up and accepted it in a jar on the stage. That was very oh, interesting. And, and there you go. There's another actor that is totally deserving to be here and who won the Golden Globe uh, and is not nominated at all, and that's Taron Egerton for uh, Rocket Man. And it hurts for us, me and you here, of course. We've been talking and, about Rocket Man all year and loving it. And, you know, it's very easy to see the, the comparison between him and Rami Malek for uh, playing yeah. Freddie Mercury and seeing the, the he's incredible... he's so much above yeah. that performance. That, uh, there's like... It's, There's a canyon it's of quality. It's astoundingly better than Bo Rap, which was nominated. I mean, I don't really know how JoJo is a better movie than Rocketman, but it's in there. Yeah, well, yeah. again, I think a lot of those, the other thing, you got to put on your cynical cap and understand, you know, Taika Waititi is a very big Hollywood personality now. Yeah. Everybody loves him. They love his, his work, you know, independently here as well. He's been and nominated before. Dexter Fletcher, of course, very big with the british and he's made you know mostly british musicals before this and and he already kind of had a shake with bow rap which he was heavily involved with uh, fixing and writing the ship with so i think I, yeah. that's what i kept saying last year i really wish they wouldn't blow the load now yeah well uh, you know i think the the nice thing is at least there is some recognition for rocket man here and best original song i know I think we're on the same page with that one, though there is some competition with the the Toy Story song here. Yeah. I can't let you throw yourself away, but I don't I don't see anything else here really uh, winning. They, they got a song from yeah. Harriet. I know, I know. That was the one thing from Harriet that was kind of renowned, I suppose. But I mean, it. they gave they gave the actress, uh, you know, Cynthia Erivo here a best a- actress nomination, shockingly. Because everyone and had said that movie's terrible. <laughs> I understand why you have to go into the unknown with Frozen, but I mean, there's there's five better songs in that movie. I I, I won't let my daughter hear this podcast. <laughs> well, she won't be able to listen anyway. You probably shouldn't let her listen to us anyway. We're terrible influences. There we are. Uh, I mean, she I mean she has to interact with me eventually, but maybe not. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, we hope that your your wife is more of an influence than you are in the end. I know. I hope so as well. Uh, <laughs> I've, I watched every animated film with her for this year, and I'm very passionate about Toy Story or Claws winning. Uh, I don't know and about the others. I think that's where we differ. I know Claws just won one of the other ones. Was it the... Whatever the anime... It's called the Annies. I forget what the actual award show is, but it won the animation award. Yeah, so... And, and that made me feel good, because Claws was the one I picked. I have... I am confident that the Disney cynicism is bleeding over into the Academy as well. And 
And though I've heard from everyone, because I didn't watch anything, of course, because I don't watch movies, yeah. um, that that Claws has, you know, structural or story problems. Uh, it does. The, the animation is astounding is the one thing I keep hearing. And I think that's what the members of the Academy are going to latch on to. And they're going to I herald mean, this, this very beautifully animated film over a fourth Toy Story movie. <laughs> I don't think... I don't know if Toy Story is making it, because then we had at the Golden Globes Missing Link surprisingly winning. Um, these Both of these animation awards could be easily bought, and that's always been the story about both the Annies and the Golden Globes uh, recognition for animation, is that uh, you know it's always whoever does the best campaign and whoever sends them the most money, it's fine. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen any campaigning really for the animated films uh, this no. year. Which, which I think would be a good thing. If either Klaus or Missing Link wins, I'll be very excited because I want to see those more original voices and those more breakthrough, uh, you know, visual animations come through and win over another Disney film, especially a sequel like this. <laughs> that that would be very disappointing. Even though it is still very likely that Toy Story is going to win. <clears throat> so, do you think like Dark Horsing it that there's any hope for How to Train Your Dragon? <laughs> That's a huge technical advancement for DreamWorks. And if we want to talk about the most advanced or forward-moving, I think we're either looking at Claws for that new art style or How to Train Your Dragon. I've I've heard zero discussion about How to Train... Honestly, I'm surprised How to Train Your Dragon is here and not Frozen. Is Frozen here as well? I'm trying no, to find it. No, it's not. The... No. Yeah, okay. So, so I'm surprised by that, that that one got on because, you know, Disney. But... Uh... Yeah, I'll be surprised, because honestly, I forgot about How to Train Your Dragon this last year. <laughs> it's good. I mean, it's really good. Uh, it, I mean, it, it has some fantastic moments. It, wasn't, wasn't the Lego movie? Also... Wasn't there a Lego movie sequel yeah, last was... year, too? There Damn. was. That, that wasn't as great, but it was okay. Yeah. I'm just, yeah, I'm surprised by how many uh, notable animated films came out last year, but were just so quickly forgotten. Yeah. The the other I mean, thing that Klaus has going for it, I guess I'll say as well, is that it came out in December. It came out in that right yeah. time frame where it's going to be at the forefront of the Academy's mind. Nobody's going to remember uh, How to Train Your Dragon from like May or whenever the hell that came out. It was also put on Netflix right around Christmas. So you imagine the families getting together. It's right up there with Irishmen. The kids in one room watching Klaus while the parents are watching Irishmen. It's, it's yeah. such an easy combo and such an easy sell. Whereas That's everyone the- had to go out for the rest of these movies. That's the big thing with the animation category as well, is that it's always, um, you know, something that the Academy members have to see with their children. Yeah. So, and and that's so, why so many great, like, Miyazaki films or whatever have been passed over before, because nobody's going to yeah. watch those subtitle films with their kids. You know, they're going to go for the I easy mean, Disney things again and again. Potentially Weathering With You is the most, maybe most deserving, a lot of anime fans would say that, but um, nobody's going to go watch that with their kids. Why would you? Yeah. And, you know, it's also just about accessibility as well. Uh, They don't make, um, you know, non-American films very easy for people to watch. (laughs) Even even with these, you know, the screeners that all these Academy members get and everything, it's, you know, they just have piles of screeners. And that makes, I think, the selection sometimes even harder because you you just have this plethora of options and, you know, you don't know which to go with and so you pass over so many. <laughs> I'll say that I did my best and still have about 15 that I was sent that I haven't, that I never got to. Well, it's, it's hard. It's hard to see every single movie. I think it's not fair to expect everybody to uh, with everything here, but it, I mean, even just looking here at all the 
nominations, it's it's difficult. I I don't certainly don't blame any Academy members for not seeing every single thing, even yeah. though it's their job to. Although I have seen, I've now seen everything except the shorts. So anyone want to invite me into the Academy? I'm ready. <laughs> the shorts are always kind of the harder ones to predict here because so many of us don't watch them. Yeah, and they're always wild cards anyway because we never really. I've I've tried to follow what Academy wants for shorts, but I don't know if they watch them. Yeah, uh, and that's the other tough thing. Even though they're easier to watch by nature because they're shorts, you know. Yeah. Uh, there's just not as much of an interest. I think it's hard because you you might have an interest in one short, but then it's inaccessible unless you want to go to the theater and watch what all five six shorts. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're they're always shown in blocks, of course, and there's given of course they're given a lot of access if they're in the academy. But uh, for us, there's like two days a year that we're able to get to AMC or Regal and watch these things, so it's impossible. Well, hopefully the academy members get to them more, and we have a. I'm I'm excited to see if they will fairly represent what uh, everyone thought was the best of the best this year. Uh, it looks like they have a real chance at doing so. Particularly in the best picture category, there's some real contenders here this year. Like, what do you think our biggest argument is? It maybe like best cinematography. I I know we both want the same thing, but yeah, well, potentially. I think me and you are on the same page for effectively who should win what, like what deserves to win. Yeah. Uh, even if it's not our favorites from each for from the year, like I can say that my my desired wish for best picture is not what I thought was the best picture, but what I think will steer uh, American filmmaking in a better direction overall. Uh, as far as for our most contended between me and you personally uh, about what should win things? I think it's probably 1917 in every category that it could win. Yeah, I think you're you're definitely defaulting to a lot of the majority opinion here that 1917 is going to sweep uh, and I, I do not believe that. I'm on the train more so that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is going to sweep up a lot here because, yeah. man, does the Academy love them some films about Hollywood. They do. Um, I think it would be a very interesting story if 1917 wins because it will be atypical. I mean, usually it comes from best screenplay, and I don't think that's winning screenplay. And I think that whatever wins screenplay, probably Parasite or Once probably won't make it so it also doesn't have a real actor representation which hardly yeah, it ever gets you an award it doesn't have any actor representation which i think is a count against it it has won a lot of the major awards so far but yeah that that doesn't it's, mean that the academy the academy tends to act a little differently than the other ones because it is so much more insider hollywood i think so they tend to yeah. that uh they tend to surprise us in not so great ways, you know. Most of the time, <laughs> I think it's I think it's the preferential ballot will tilt that too. So uh, it may be even a lot of the same guild members are coming through and representing in this vote, but uh, the vote turns out differently. So um, mm -hmm. you know how the preferential ballot thing works, right? You want to go ahead and explain it for people who are listening <laughs> who may not. Yeah, absolutely. definitely, definitely so, not me. I know how it works, of course, okay. but just you know, for for other people. <laughs> so let's say JoJo gets the least amount of number one so it's cut off it's no longer in consideration even if it's everyone's number two film they'll they just won't even consider it for best picture so we go down and we cut off every film with the least amount of number ones till we get to the one with the most so we're either thinking i think we're thinking like 1917 uh parasite maybe joker or what would you say irishman or uh, once oh. upon a time Time in Hollywood, I think. Uh, 
I think Joker is is unlikely. Uh, yeah. And it probably the worst case number, number ones. No, I think it's going to be worst case scenario if Joker takes the top prize. If it takes best picture, <laughs> then then we are continually spiraling down this rabbit hole of comic book madness. Uh, and although more prestige, thought provoking comic book movies is better than soulless, you know, comic book movies. Maybe I guess uh, I don't know. I, don't, I think it's a bad direction no matter what. Whereas as I said earlier. The best thing that can happen from this uh, ceremony is if Parasite wins Best Picture, as totally unlikely as I, that is. That's not as unlikely as I think I make it sound here, but yeah, a, I don't think so. a, a non-English language film has never won Best Picture. And I think it would be like the Twitter fil- film Twitter favorite, right? Like a, everyone wants Parasite to win that's in on this. We look at Letterboxd, and it's, what is it? It's the number one or two best rated film of all time so there's like a huge user bias towards parasite at least that's what we really want and that's what the internet wants and uh everyone with parasite especially you know director bong juno has been campaigning rigorously to get the recognition everywhere and they they've yeah. got a very great campaign i think and a real shot at winning uh best picture which is why we've uh you know selected to talk about this week but um Every time they get up on stage, they get the they get the biggest clap, right? Like they get the biggest, they get the most resounding applause. Everyone loves the story that's in on it, and I think that might just be enough because there's eight films that I think are very divisive, and if enough people just like Parasite more than those other eight, you know, the way mm-hmm. they're divided, I think that's a likely preferential ballot winner. So I do have hope, but uh, I also think 1917 is very dominant. I, again, I think, uh, you know, while, while it seems that way on the paper with everything and the awards we've seen it, you know, sweep up so far, I think uh, you might be discounting the the love within the Hollywood circles for Tarantino and his, his latest opus here. Uh, you know, everywhere I see on, on Twitter, the actual people participating in the votes, the Hollywood people, uh, they, they loved, loved, loved Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. They loved Tarantino, of course. And they loved Did, the nostalgic sense of the cinema that it gave them seeing it. And they saw it many, many times. Where I have heard from some of them specifically a little more, you know, up in the air on something like Parasite, for instance. I felt bad after the BAFTAs because when uh, Bong Joon-ho won, it cut to Tarantino's face. And he had the worst, like, most angry look and... It's so unfair to like demonize him for this because he's always been such a huge proponent of John Ho's films. So and, and I don't really like that we're doing that to his character online. Yeah, I think that's that's not what he actually feels about and all this. I don't think Tarantino is a sore loser necessarily. I think uh, he wants to win, though. I think it's oh, of fair course, to be like, okay, I want to win this award. I'm disappointed. That's fine. Show your emotion. Yeah, no, I think that's fine, and I don't think he he detests or is angry at you know bong for for winning you know they're very good uh friends as many of these directors are you know and they uh, appreciate and bolster each other uh in the films here and you know and maybe tarantino will be remaking parasite i'm sure he'll grab elements <laughs> next time <laughs> certainly it's not you know the first uh you know film he's taken anything from by any means yeah. you know i mean i could see that he's pulled something from like memories of murder and I mean, he's always been such a proponent of his film, so I just don't like this narrative that Twitter's gone on. Because yeah. Tarantino's very deserving this year. And he's no, not going to win it again, I don't think. 
Uh, yeah, I, I don't think whatever his next film will be, from from the sounds of it, I mean, he certainly could surprise us, but this is the most appealing film, I think, to Hollywood he's made. Uh, <laughs> like, the only one that really otherwise stood a chance at any kind of best picture was Pulp Fiction when it was nominated and won yeah. the award at uh, Cannes, but obviously it was a little too not Academy too to win. Yeah, it's it's... I think the thing with Pulp Fiction, too, is that it had such a long-lasting influence. I don't think it's a thing that really hit and was like, damn, this changed Hollywood right now. It's like 10 years later, it was like, fuck, that's the movie. Well, also, it changed indie filmmaking, I would argue, more yeah. than Hollywood itself, which is I kind mean, of it, the it, big thing. It had like the asynchronous plot where you're going into like different times and periods, and I could see how on like a, a one screener or one viewing, you wouldn't be like, oh, that's better than the obviousness of Forrest Gump. Mm-hmm. All right, well, uh, do you think... There's any other part of the uh, Oscars you think you want to highlight here before we get into yeah, the course. discussion of the films itself? <laughs> yeah, let's let's hear. We could do I, probably a whole podcast on the Oscars and what we think is going to happen, honestly. But <laughs> just as an agent of chaos, I want Ford versus Ferrari to win everything. I just want everyone <laughs> completely upset. I want the reclamation of dads at the Oscars, and I want it. I'll be digging into all our friends here. It, oh man, that would be like. That would be my dream scenario. Is it's, Ford versus Ferrari wins the Oscar. Everyone loves cars. New Fast and Furious coming up. Man, it would just be my year. <laughs> it's honestly the most baffling Best Picture nomination here because it's like not nominated in any other major category that usually indicates it's you know deserving place there. Uh, yeah. You know, at least something like Joker. Like you understand why because it made big <laughs> splashes with you know everyone and I did think- well at the box office and everything, but. I nope, just think nope. it's such an easy appeal that it came out in Thanksgiving. And it's about cars. The guys love cars. And it's the kind that would have won 25 years ago or something. Uh, I don't know. If it were called, like, Le Mans 66, I think people would buy into it more than if it were named after two companies. Yeah, it's just it's such a bizarre entry here uh, amongst, I, amongst everything else. But I guess one confounding selection against nine others that you can at least draw a logical line between that's better than last year and that's yeah, it's, it's that's all that's all i could really ask after the real shit show that was last year i felt like it was a total disaster uh and all i the wonder way the if, wins. if something like jojo or joker wins will we remember that or will we be like you know, I can't tell you all the best pictures from last year. Was it like Black Panther was one? It was very strange. Black I, Black I, Panther I was know. a nomination. It was kind of a you know a pity one. Like nobody actually thought Black Panther was going to win. I don't think. Unlike Joker, which it feels like there's actually enough prestige around to have some momentum. So uh, two years in a row, we've got these comic book movies, and I think they're finally getting what they wanted out of the expansion from ten because they have this commercialization. People want to see Joker do something. Yeah, but again, I, I, I defer back to my argument earlier that if Joker wins and the continued <laughs> accolades here, it's just going to perpetuate the superhero trend that we have going, which we would really love to move away from. Whereas if Parasite wins, I think that's the, honestly the best thing that can happen because it's it's already done so much to make waves for you know non-American cinema and for subtitled films and getting people who would never you know consider such a thing to actually go out and view this film. And if it wins, that's going to make even bigger splashes because the one thing the Oscars do it's it's not necessarily an indication of what the best is of any year, but it does more or less dictate the kind of films that. American studio systems will make for the following year. 
and so they'll focus on more prestigious uh, films like that and potentially get them into more distribution and try and get those, uh, you know, non-English films out in the theaters a bit more. Worst case, as the Joker says, these movies are going to get what they fucking deserve. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I want to burn it down and I want to see something new start. But I also really am interested in what you're saying here with the foreign films and that we could do a lot more for non-American world cinema. And uh, I think Parasite is such a great entrant for that. Um, should we jump into our more general discussion of it? Uh, the films, yes. I think this is a, a great film to discuss. Again, uh, you know, we considered a couple other options here. We could have talked about any of the other nominations a bit more in depth. We've talked about them all throughout the year, but Parasite, I think, was one that we wanted to highlight in particular because, again, I think it is... Uh, it's it's the, the, the golden child, I think, of the, the nominations here. I think it has the, the most interest and appeal of any of the uh, nominations, and it stands out, obviously, as this uh, dark horse, I guess I will say. We'll call this one the dark horse of all of them. I mean, it feels pariah, right? Like, uh, this stands for something that people have wanted to see for a long time. And it's so sleekly accessible. Um, it More than pretty much any other uh, world cinema this year, it's emblematic of the U.S. and 2019-2020 problems. I think that's that's definitely the one of the main reasons why it resonated so strongly with us over here in America is that the themes of class divide and uh, you know frustration there uh, really resonate with what's been going on in our country uh, and generally just across the world we're having a lot of that uh, class dispute issue but and uh, Parasite packages that in such a fun and thrilling and genre bending presentation that is like you said I think very accessible despite the very obvious and notable Korean style of storytelling and how it, you know, bounces between different genres uh, so fluidly. I mean, it could be... It's so essential that I don't think it feels like you're walking into a very strange thing. I've compared it to, like, Gatsby all year, but I think that's <laughs> the thing is that you could compare it so directly to any big American story or anything about classism, and there would be direct parallels, because this is what, like, a classic storytelling is built on and we've had so many years of like oh these are all heroes journey stories but what about these ambig you know ambiguous stories about people who are down on their luck but also the rich and you know not vilifying either but kind of living in their situations and without judgment kind of passing them off as real lived-in characters I'm, I'm glad you brought up the Gatsby comparison because I wanted to to deconstruct this this narrative you've been stringing about it since seeing the film because at first when you first saw it before any of us and just basically said it's like the great gatsby it's korean great gatsby over we, we all kind of looked at you a little dumbfounded and were did not know what you meant and it seemed like the this weird comparison but i think i've figured it out finally oh you have yes i think i i think i understand what you mean when you compare it to the great okay. gatsby because i don't think okay, you mean it as, <laughs> yeah it's not like a direct parallel in no. the type of story it is it's not like you know he you know the characters here are like gatsby and it's the story about the rich and the failing of the american dream it, it when you say it's the korean great gatsby you're comparing it in the broad sense that it's this great encompassing work of its country and it hmm. works as a flagship and this in this big uh watershed moment for cinema in korea this is like a big breaking of the mold after you know and a great representation of the country's um you know cultural significance in you know fictitious form 
and, yeah. and how it also has similar themes of tackling class disparity, but not literally exactly like The Great Gatsby, <laughs> which is how you... it's a remake. But it, I definitely threw it out there to confuse people. <laughs> it, at first, like, that seemed to be the only thing with very little expansion and discussion. It's just like, it's just like The Great Gatsby. It's like, like the Curry Great Gatsby. We're like, we don't know what you mean, and you're not saying anything else. But now, after seeing the film and thinking about that over and over for many, many months... I understand what you meant by that. <laughs> That's fantastic that you finally got to at least, you know, what I what I mean, like, in a broad sense. Because in the history books, when we look back at American literature and the American dream, I think we see F. Scott Fitzgerald as, like, the big, you know, symbol of that. And I think if we look at, like, a Korean dream and we see what he's representing in this, like, architecture, in this housing, like, building this whole set design. And also, you have the obvious sim symbolism, right? Like, Nick living under, like, a very rained-over mansion that's, he's, like, down the hill. And they're so close to each other. Just, you know, he all he does is move down the steps, but his life is kind of like a hell. But Gatsby's is, like, a huge carnival of excess. But, uh, mm. of course, I, I mean in the broad sense, like, it's the great Korean novel in film form. Yeah, yeah so th basically that this is the, the the top of the pile in terms of what we recognize as great Korean cinema. This is the one that's really oh, yeah. broken through and made an impact with audiences around the globe. Even though there have been great Korean works now booming for yeah. the last 20 years, new Korean cinema is, is very hot you know, it's been very successful since about the beginning of the 2000s or so. I mean, uh, you're not going to write a history book about Korean cinema without this being a chapter. I mean, it's not a footnote. It's not even an entry. It's like the chapter of what Parasite did for, like, Korean cinema from here. Yeah, I can I can agree with that sentiment, and it certainly seems so. And you can see that development. Um, you know, many people have made comparisons uh, from the, the, the group of, you know, big Korean filmmakers like Bong Joon-ho and... Uh, uh, Chanwook Park and uh, or Park Chanwook, sorry, I mix his name yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, uh, and and other major Korean filmmakers to the likes of the '70s uh, kind of Rat Pack of filmmakers here in America with New Hollywood Cinema with uh, Scorsese, Coppola, De Palma, you know George Lucas and all them. Yeah, um, I mean, I definitely think you could feel the the new Hollywoodness of this, the new Korean cinema of it. Yes. I mean, not so much like new wave, but going into like more of the new Hollywood where it's expression against studios and it's independent ideas. And uh, I love that he finally came back to his Korean roots after trying kind of uh, succeeding with Snowpiercer and then completely failing with the Oakjaw. This was the only way to go forward. Yeah, uh, and what's nice to see, it's, it's nice to look over uh, Bong's filmography as well and see the consistent themes and, uh, you know storytelling devices he uses even throughout the american pictures as well and there is definitely a unique still very strong korean voice in those two american films uh, there, that comes yeah. through and it's nice to see that but it definitely feels parasite does feel like a major breath of fresh air comparatively and you can see how much more at home he is and uh the filmmaking here is just very incredible uh certainly some of the best of the year uh and the writing i think for the film is the the real sharp aspect though i think bong's script here is cutting and uh economical those first 40 minutes in particular all the way up to getting everyone uh, part of the family and into the house is just mm. masterful writing and execution uh all the way up on screen i mean just the way it begins i'm entranced every time with them you know like 
we're just realizing their setting and it kind of hits us over the head with this idea that you know they're you know they're just looking for their signal it's such a common thing right like a we're just looking for wi-fi and you know borrowing off the neighbors and it suddenly strips down all these layers of okay they're folding pizza boxes but now they're getting fumigated there's all these ideas that are like packed onto each other and confidently layered um Every shot is so confident, too. Um, yeah. I feel like he holds his attention well. He has a great ensemble. It's not like there's a weak piece here. I did want to uh, point out a, a, an odd thing that was acknowledged to me by, by my fiance and just general weird translation issue that comes in this American release. I don't know why it's this way, but I don't know if you noticed that when they're looking around the house for Wi-Fi, they're talking mm-hmm. about the fact that they can't get WhatsApp anymore. Yeah. And that's a bizarre translation because WhatsApp is not the thing they're using. That's an attempt by the translator to create a parallel between the major social media device they use in Korea, which is called Kakao Talk, yeah, which which connects to like everything, and it, and it's not at all like WhatsApp. So it feels like a very odd translation choice there, and just other weird things like um, you know formalities and discussion and how they regard people you know of different ages you know how that kind of works in more eastern cultures and they use these weird things like they they refer to some by like cis like the females do when they're when they're trying to emulate that but they don't use it for the male equivalent which is a very odd translation thing i find i mean i've read yeah that there was the replacement of that. Of course, it would throw me though. I wouldn't know what the app is, but I think it would be fine to preserve it. There's uh, a yeah, and there's always the tricks. Like you could do a better job of just saying like, "Oh, we can't use our messenger service" or something more vague. Like specifically stating it as WhatsApp does a really weird thing of dating the film. I feel like, <laughs> especially here for the states, because there are, there are so many people who do not use that app. I also don't know what what WhatsApp is. So exactly. I mean, if they said Kakao Talk or however you say it, I wouldn't, it wouldn't know either. Yeah, it wouldn't matter. It wouldn't know the difference. You'd get the sense of what it is based on how they're using it without yeah. being disingenuous, I feel like, which is that weird translation issue. And there's... I forget the name of the dish, too, but they, I think it's called Random. In the, in the yeah. movie, they changed it from like an official dish that, or a, a package dish that they have. That's, that's odd as well. Weird translation choices i don't know who is in charge of that but i don't yeah and 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 that's the issue you're going to run into with translation generally is that you have to make a decision if you want to be 100 percent authentic or if you want to represent it in a way that makes sense for you know an american audience and there's lots of choices you have to make that throughout but it is those were odd ones that stood out to me as someone who does not speak korean uh Mm. still noticed and was thrown off by I did read the script, and I don't remember if that was written in or if it were changed. Uh, you know, I bet it was changed, but I don't it know. It could have the, been written in, but I don't know. I want to point out one other thing in the beginning that kind of threw me off that I remembered from the first viewing, but it really stuck with me this time. I'm like, oh, that's this weird and unfortunate, is that the t- getting into the house and the kickoff of the plot is a bit of a mm. writing contrivance. Uh, you know, they, they give the boy of the family, the son, a friend who gives him this in here. And as a character, he exists solely to kick the plot off and get them in the house. He uh, does. And, <laughs> and he represents a different path that anyone in the family could have taken, but they failed at, I think. Well, he's just such a, a plot-serving character, and that's it. I don't and he think doesn't so. come For up. me, that... For me, that is like the representation of the Korean dream is that he would go off to America and he'd, you know, be in school and the family's still living off this one dream that did succeed, but they're left behind. I mean, I, I, I can see that. Like, like he's not uh, a totally devoid character by any means. I, I think they do a 
uh, Bong does a good enough job, you know, kind of representing him as a full person before completely writing him out of the story. But I just <laughs> yeah. wish he was like he's he's so clearly there to set up the plot and that's it like you could substitute him for a craigslist or whatever ad and he would serve the same it would serve the same purpose essentially of getting them into the house you know it it would be nice if there's a a little bit more to him there uh, you know that's like so, a minor minor issue i understand that he has to exist to get us there but i it just feels like there is a better way some somehow so his other thing for me is a handoff of a korean dream is that he has the rock and our friend Hamid did the article on what the parasite is, and for me, the parasite is the dream, and it is the rock. So, uh, that's a well worth reading article. We have a couple up on parasite in addition to this that I highly recommend. It's a very uh, uh, thought provoking film, I think certainly, and has uh, it doesn't draw every conclusion for you, so it leaves a mm-hmm. lot there. And I think it is one of the more interesting films to ponder upon that came out this last year. Yeah, I think it. I think it has a lot of meat to dig into too. Um, I've seen it three times, so I didn't watch it today because I'd just seen it last month and then had seen it in theater twice. Uh, I feel well covered on Parasite generally. Uh, I I feel fairly covered, and in fact, I felt fairly covered having seen it back in November. Yeah, and I was prepared to not watch it again to discuss on this podcast because surprisingly, I found I remembered the film so vividly, whereas others have faded from my memory a bit. But uh, I watched images of certain things stick with me. There's there's like certain lines that will never leave my head. Like you know, Jessica, only child, Illinois, yeah, Chicago. I'll never forget it. Oh, because they do it in this very fun rhythmic way, and it got memed a little bit. I think afterwards as well, which was fun. But generally, especially visually, the film stuck out to me in a way that I felt like I could picture it together in a very. Uh, clear method uh the house especially like the walk up to the house the time first first son gets there uh, the son gets there and he the camera tracks behind him and then there's this big like revolving shot that reveals how wide uh the space is around the entire mansion and everything this beautiful gorgeous shot that really pulls you into the grandiosity of the world i think amazingly that they built up the whole set for this that they had to construct the house themselves and on the great thing to see as well is the visual effects I saw on Twitter, some of the pictures and stuff where, you know, it's just that first floor mm-hmm. and they have blue screens stretching up in the background. And that's how a lot of films are made today, which is, yeah. I think, uh, a wonderful use of this new technology is that it allows us to uh, get around, you know, have to not go all the way in things while still authentically representing what things look like there. You can't tell that the you know half of the house is cg and the entire skyline is all fake uh, it doesn't and, matter also right it, like it yeah. doesn't it doesn't remove anything from the performance or something right and, and it's it's this smart economical way of filmmaking that uses the tools to their advantage without taking away from the important and realistic elements you need there it's just like why build a two-story house when a one story is all you really need to get the feeling and you could put the second story in in post-production and it still looks just as good and it's not we've been doing that for years i think about this shot in uh uh charlie chaplin's city lights where he has the whole city but he only built one story of the city and in the wide shot above it he has a model that he used you know and he put Mm -hmm. on top and so the camera shoots it that way and so it's basically the same technique just with cg we're doing here oh yeah that's a very popular technique i think it's well used here because the house is so believable and becomes a character i mean 
You could call the house the parasite itself. I mean, there's so many things you could the, assign symbols here. The design of the house is really incredible. It's one of those things that sticks with you. Um, you know, and it it's one of those where it's like, I think this one's deserving of the production design award if I don't necessarily yeah. think it will win. But if it does, it will absolutely more than deserve it because uh, from the color palette to the structure of it to the, the multiple floors and the layout, it's all so meticulously well realized that you can easily piece everything together and there are so many sequences built around the structure of the rooms and it's you know and just so incredibly well done and you know visually like i said it sticks in your mind it's a place it's it's a real location that you can put back together without much thought and i think it is such a well-remembered movie because it's dynamically designed it it has so much feeling and symbol in everything. And uh, it's such strong, vivid colors that change throughout the plot. I mean, it's it's very storybook. Uh, it's very textbook how you would do symbolism in a novel, I'd say, like literature. It has so much literary feeling in it. Do you feel very strongly, like, a very certain about some of the symbols? I know you brought up The Rock, but it's, it's one of those where I feel like the the symbolism for it is flexible to a point of being vague. Uh, oh, I don't think so. Well, what do you think it means directly then? I'd be interested to know. Well, I always felt like the rock was the parasite. So that was my direct symbol of it is that the rock is the Korean dream. And like you say, it is so flexible that you could adapt anything onto it. But that's why I think it's a literary imaginative film because I'm still placing symbols and ideas on things. I'm like not, you would I'm, if you're reading a book. Especially. I'm not... I'm not sure what you mean exactly by it being the Korean dream. Uh, I get this idea because it is passed from the one. Uh, oh, because friend. yeah, it was from yeah. it was from royalty, right? Like it was. It's a well, very. It's the most expensive thing they own. Right, it's from the friend, but then how it incorporates into the plot later on, used as this weapon of malice against yeah. <laughs> against the son specifically by the uh, well, the crazy man in the yeah. basement. <laughs> It's like their only symbol of riches they use, and they weaponize it against other people that are poor. So they're, you know, it's about how poors are eating away at each other and et cetera. Et cetera. Okay, I can I can see that how they how he uses the rock to assault the sun. Yeah, you know, is this idea only symbol of, of wealth? So yeah, so so taking taking the symbol of the rich and using it as a weapon against the poor. You know the you know the the rich more or less, you know, pitting the poor against each other in this case. Um, I, I I want to buy into that, but I feel like at the time in the plot where that comes up, it feels more like a just a plot usage. I don't see the, the symbolism is direct there. I kind of get it, like I said, on paper. And then I wonder what that means for the subsequent event where the father stabs the... Uh, uh, I believe it's the park, you know, is, is the name of the family yeah. there. The park, you know, head of the household there. Instead, so it turns the the class violence against the rich. Then that 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 moment still, even on this last rewatch, it still rubs me a little weird and a little sudden and jarring. Especially with the regretful action of it we see later from the father, is that it it feels like almost I don't want to say unearned because I get where it's coming from there, and it was building obviously in some way, but it does feel so sudden and jarring to me still. There's that point where it needs to move the plot somewhere, and that is, like, the actionable event. And I don't think that has so much symbolism as the moment before it. Yeah, it feels very drastic. It feels like a very drastic turn in the story, uh, whereas the other dark turn that comes with the basement stuff felt like a natural progression to me, and I was 100% on board with. But the sudden, yeah, yeah. the sudden excess of 
death in that in that sequence there feels like whoa where did this come from and and now we're on a different story plot here especially compared to the very uh kind of fluffy heists you know film structure nature of the first 40 minutes or so it's i just it's feel not like everything is so intended though uh, i feel like yeah no it's he does is intended it's entirely an intentional and confident decision. It's just one I feel like I personally don't agree with, you know, and it and it goes over oddly with me. Just that that one moment is enough to to kind of twist my perception in like the last ten minutes of the film it comes in and it and it sours me just just enough. I don't know. It's it's I it's think so I kind noticed it too, like especially the first watch. I thought I I was really hesitant when that happened that something worse would happen, but then I really like the way that it wraps up in the end. The, the ending is still very great, very solid, and it wraps up the themes in a magnificent manner. Uh, it's, but, but it does have that weird, you know, like I said, sourness that that one moment gives. Uh, on my first watch, when I saw it in theater, I know the moment where the flood came and the family started all turning on them uh, internally oh, yeah, the in a way you can see. <laughs> yeah, it felt... Uh, that, that's where my my I started turning against the film this time when I watched it again not so much because I saw the brooding feeling uh, I don't know th- th- there's a weird moment that comes right before Mr. Park gets killed where he where he holds his nose you know trying to get the mm. keys out from under the guy and it's this reinforcement we've seen over and over of this this stench of the lower class or whatever they've put specifically on Mr. Kim uh, yeah and. And it's just this weird hang-up, I find. And it's, it's this very dramatic gesture he does in this moment of crisis, which feels very odd to me, you know. And so that's really the motivating factor for stabbing him in that moment, is this culmination of all of the slander against him for his stench, you know. Yeah, even even in death, the rich are only disgusted by, you know, the presence of the, of the lower class. And, and that they can smell it, them, it doesn't even matter who they are. It feels like such an on-the-nose moment to me, yeah. you know, uh, which is one of the weird things. Not that the film hasn't been very obvious and oblique with its, you know, uh, theme the entire time. but it, is, it has very strong, yeah. obvious symbols the whole time. Oh, yeah. it's The film is very in-your-face about it. It's never uh, unquestioning what the film is about, which is not a bad thing. It's not, like, you know, overbearing, I don't think. It's just very clear in what it's saying the entire time, which is good for dumb American audiences who otherwise wouldn't get it. I think that's what makes it so accessible and so adaptable into any place that is capitalistic and does care about uh, class structures, which is... It's interesting watching that become a reflection in South Korean cinema, the same as it is here. Because it's, it, it's it's an even stronger representation of us than us was. Oh, absolutely! Us is his own muddled, you know, metaphorical problems because it makes things a little too literal there. Uh, while going this is for a, a lot fantastical than thing, that yeah. kind of obvious symbolism, I'd say. Yes, this is this is confidently obvious, and it makes sense the entire way through. Um, you know, it just, I question the one judgment is really all, because part of the other problem I think with it as well, uh, maybe not problem, but, you know, issue, I guess, that comes up is that so much sympathy is still put with the Park family. We never don't like them, which is why that moment, and it's an intentional choice, but when that moment comes where he kills them, it doesn't feel right, and it's not supposed to feel right, but it yeah. doesn't, it doesn't feel right I, in a weird way to me. 
that must be like the intention of it being so jarring. I mean, it might be just be enough for it to make you say what, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, but the, it, the film's so ambiguous about both classes, the whole runtime that, uh, I don't really feel like it sets up like a sympathy play there or that it would, it would make you take a side there. It's just, uh, this is the violent end result of our classism. The, the, the sympathies of the film is clearly with the, the Chan family. Obviously, we so? love them. Yeah, I, I think we do, even though they're obviously doing, you know, a, a, an illegal and kind of awful, reprehensible act. <laughs> we like them, we're charmed by them, we're with them the whole way, but we're not against the parks, you know, so to no. speak, as well. We still like them Maybe as the people. Maybe the mom a little bit. Uh, I mean, she's just easily manipulatable, I think, and, we, and I think there's yeah. a charm to her as well. We don't dislike her. You know, we just, it's just this idea that we, we find the humor and the the joy and the fun in being able to manipulate and feed off of them. Again, in that parasitic sense that this family is doing here. Uh, but, again, like I said, we're not, we don't dislike them. So when Mr. Park is murdered towards the end of the film, <laughs> it's still sad, but it's not as yeah. sad as, say, like the, the daughter, you know, who gets violently killed. Th that's the other point I want to bring up, which why things feel a little odd here, is that the the violence in the film is incredibly stark, and there's at least one person, uh, when the son gets smashed over the head twice with a, you know, the giant rock twice, and there's a giant yeah. pool of blood he's lying in, he still survives, which seems odd for how clearly violent and destructive that is whereas the uh the housekeeper who gets killed because she smashes her head against the concrete wall there uh you know and, and dies after having a severe concussion uh you know it's not quite as violent still very violent but not quite as violent as getting his head smashed in with a rock yeah um i don't know it's interesting there's something to the the class battle there and there's something to the there's all the Native American references and how it draws back on our own history and how we feel something deeply about that and how sudden the violence is really means something, right? I think I think the the suddenness of the violence means something, but it also feels jarring. Again, that's that's the big conflict I have with the film is that. Do the... you feel? Do you feel there's a big reading to be done on what all the Na Native American symbolism is meant to mean there? No, uh, I don't see Especially it. Especially with him, like, looking like he has, like, ro rosacea underneath the headdress. And it's like that final stand before, uh, behind the bushes, before there's the real, like, cowboy Indian moment. I mean, I, I can see an idea there, but I don't see a direct parallel to something specifically. I just see the, the Indian stuff as a representative uh, representation of... Uh, oh. The, I don't the, think that's fun. <laughs> uh, I know, but I would love to find something there, but I don't see a d direct, easily, you know, drawing parallel between the idea of the the American Indians and the genocide of them to the the current class struggle we're going through here. I'd like to because it seems like a thing you could very easily do, but I don't, I don't know exactly what it would be. Yeah, I don't know if it's like joking in context because it's like, of course, there's like a family invading a home of where someone lives and then they're, you know, Indians and cowboys and uh, he's been through so much and everything's worn on him from like sleeping at the, you know, the big gymnasium and uh, mm -hmm. getting the new clothes and everything's really gone downhill and he hasn't slept for days. I don't feel like it's that sudden. I mean, I think there's a buildup. Uh, it, it just feels too 
unspoken. I don't know. I don't want to say that the film needed to spell it out for me, you know, but because ob- yeah, obviously, I don't know what I would say. Obviously, there's a brooding, uh, you know, aspect to the frustration that Mr. Kim is feeling. And you see it there in the bushes when he's being more or less reprimanded by Mr. Park saying, you know, treat this like a job. You're being paid overtime, you know, you know, kind of get your shit together here and, you know, do what you're told kind of thing. And then, you know, it really comes in that moment where he's effectively asking him to, you know, Mr. Park is asking Mr. Kim to ignore his daughter who's dying to yeah. save a son who's having a, a, a seizure, which is, uh, if, if you kind of know anything, the 15 minute thing is, is not, I don't know. I, I, it's not quite as an urgent issue as someone bleeding out really, you know, they, they yeah. try to indicate that it's this certain thing. And if he doesn't get help in 15 minutes, he'll die. And that's not exactly true. Um, for me also, I think that back to the symbolism, I think it's kind of interesting in the sense that the rich just use like the, the decoration of like the downtrodden American symbol as like a headdress and decoration, and well, we do that. Class family, we do that too. <laughs> but yeah, I feel like there's something to it, like this lower class family coming back, and you know they've you, always lived like half underground, and the, the, that's the thing. The levels of which they live, and the, your viewpoint in the levels of uh, where people live is a nice class allegory there that they have that they live. The, the Chan family lives in this house that's halfway above ground and halfway underground, and then you I got... love that it's not all the way under. Like, it's not, like, in the sewers, like, teenage well, then you... to- turtles or something. Yeah. Well, then you have the comparison of the, the husband of the housekeeper who does live underground, and he yeah. represents this lower, you know, poverty-stricken class that they're on the edge of there, that they're very close to, you know, and then, you of course, you have the the, the high, you know living space of the the park family and how you have to walk up these big you know sweeping steps to get there and everything so the levels there in which people live that's a very clear uh, allegorical drawing you can have there but i'm not i'm not sure about the indian reading i would love to hear a more fleshed out idea if you come across one yeah i i'd love to look into it more i'm just stunned now that i landed on the letterbox page and only just noticed the letterbox logo is doing the uh, sos reading <laughs> Or the, is it? the uh, you know what I mean, the head reading with the, what he smashes his head against oh. the symbol. Yeah. This is news to me. <laughs> but yeah, that's actually an interesting thing as well, is that the, it's very well plotted out. I think I pointed out to you that the, the lights coming on whenever Mr. Park comes home, that's prevalent throughout the film, even before we learn about that happening. I love how implemented that is into the house and the design in the way that it's shown that uh, everything feels real and tangible and designed mm-hmm. and that's the i think the biggest strength of the film alongside it's a fantastic cast and brilliant direction is that visually the film is so well plotted out and considered and like i said that's a, a huge factor for making scenes stick out in your mind is that the geography mm-hmm. and the location of everything is so wonderfully realized and I think it all works together. I mean, you you feel that tangible connection that he's been like, uh, <laughs> he appreciates Mr. Park and he just wanted to live in this building and he's so in love with it. But uh, that, that character is also one of my problems with the films. I, I don't like his acting. Uh, you just think he's like too over the top or extraneous or? Maybe. I think the whole thing, I'm glad it's in there, I guess, for the commentary, but the whole thing about, you know, North Korea sending down the missiles and it's like I have that much control over them. I don't know. That that political context didn't fit the rest of the political context for me. 
Uh, you know, I think that's more of a you know colloquial thing. I, I guess I'll say yeah. uh, is that it's a it's a huge thing for South Korea, of course, to feel under you know constant attack. Like there's that constant nature of threat being attached to this you know uh, inflammatory and very you know uh, unsecure you know place that's cut off from everything, and but you know could attack at any moment. And they've had a long, long history with that. So that that part to me still reads as very valid. But again, I get that aspect. That it's, it's one valid. of those. It- it's one of those things that maybe as an American audience we don't appreciate as much. I can see that. I mean, it's pretty implicit in the the larger thinking about levels and classism and, you know, just being South in their country's name, right? Like, there's an implicit leveling that happens right there. So so I get that there's a lot there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, it's one of those things, like you said, where you have an issue with, with that character and I have issues with delivery. some of the things. Yeah. It's... It's not that we question the decision itself. I think, you know, especially if you look at everything on paper and you take everything, e- even as it's presented, everything is a logical and well-constructed and confident decision the entire way through. You can't question the vision of this as a real masterful stroke. It's just some of it personally I think we take issue with. Like some of it we personally mm. don't like. Like I, I wouldn't necessarily change it um you know it's just something that doesn't work for me personally where i see where it works for other people i worried about it a little bit in the first uh the first viewing of it maybe it started as like a high night and i wasn't sure if i i could really move it to that 10 area but the more i reflect on all the themes i wouldn't change anything about it Um, i'm glad everything exists as it does and i think it i mean i just deeply appreciate it i'm fine with a couple flaws in a otherwise perfect movie Right, well, and that's always going to be the case. Nothing is truly perfect, I don't think. It's no just so is. easy to find flaws in things. It's really hard to find things you appreciate about movies, you know. So, sometimes, certainly, but it's not hard to find anything to appreciate about Parasite, which, again, is really this masterfully realized, uh, you know, uh, a tourist vis- vision, I'll say. Yeah. Um, do, you, do you have much background with Bong Joon-ho's other stuff, especially the Korean stuff? Um, not, not a whole lot. It's been, like, for many people, for me, a more recent discovery, you know, watching things like uh, Memories of Murder or The Host or whatnot. You know, he's been booming for, for some time now, but, um, you know, has, has really, I think, come to the forefront of American film discussion really right now. He is this, the center of a zeitgeist, I think, and that really has a lot of momentum to potentially sweep up some awards here, which is, you know, really what we're looking forward to this weekend. I don't know if I if I need to. He has at least three, I think, perfect movies. I think Mother, Memories, and this are right up there for me. I haven't mm-hmm. seen The Host yet, so I need to. That's another uh, major testament, of course. He he's only had I think like five or six films in his you know twenty years of working or so, but a very great catalog, a very lauded uh, you know catalog as well. And uh, yeah. this this definitely feels like the one everyone wants to rally around, though. And everyone keeps saying, yeah. you know, if not now, when? When are we going to award a film like Parasite? It's got to be now. I don't think there's anything in the next decade that will really have a movement like this. Well, it feels again. It feels like a huge push behind it. The campaigning for Bong Joon Ho and for the film is, I mean, is incredible <laughs> right now. Are we even talking about any of the other uh, non-English films? We didn't even discuss the Oscar category because the outcome is so obvious here. Yeah, we we all hope for the sake of uh, not only you know 
uh, world cinema, but spe- very specifically, this, you know, the focus of our uh, American studio system and what will highlight in the future. I, like I said, I think Parasite has the ideal outcome for everyone, and it could really shift things in a in it a meteoric way. I hope that I hope Moonlight would have done the same. I think it really did. I think it's it, just I not think resonated it in a way that is going to keep getting awarded. <laughs> I oh, think I th- people expected Moonlight to be awarded every year, but. And, 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 and that's the thing. We have like, we have like a whole movement of American black cinema that's fantastic. Yeah, no, I think it it did its job in terms of uh, allowing those voices to get a little bit more prestige and recognition and green lights. Uh, but it, obviously, the Academy turned its attention away and started, you know, highlighting other things. You know, well, uh, soon I mean, after you only need to acknowledge races once, and then <laughs> I think they're covered for at least ten years. Hmm. Uh, you know, so what? After that, we had Shape of Water, which was a pretty predictable, which is great because yeah. now we can make a bunch of fish fucking movies. <laughs> <laughs> Haven't seen many of those since, but we're you know we'll wait on it. And then of course we had Green Book, which uh, seemed uh. to seem to set <laughs> set things back a bit. It seems to go against well, what we did with Moonlight, but I feel really proud of the last year that I feel no influence of Greenlight in anything I've seen. Um, I'm worried about next year because I'll be when that stuff starts being developed. But we'll yeah, see. Uh, we'll see uh, kind of what comes of that. Hopefully, like I said, you know, we get something like Parasite to set us off on the right path. But I think other things like if Once Upon a Time in Hollywood or The Irishman or 1917 wins, I think all of them basically... No influence, really. <laughs> uh, either no or good influence, where we'll continue to yeah, fund, yeah. you know, the big favorite auteurs that are still working. I think- I think if those win, it's really good for the Hollywood theater system. I think if Parasite wins, it's a new movement, and we're moving yeah. somewhere else. So. I think it has the potential to change, you know, the the landscape of American cinema if it wins again. Not and because holy fuck, like Neon will become the new A twenty four. Oh yes, if they win. Yes, so they already and have. I think. I, I think they're definitely making their big splashes, and this is again. This seems to be a turning point, and this Sunday we'll find out if we turn in the right direction or not. You know what? After all this, I think I'm finally excited for the Oscars. I feel like this is a good way to go out, just not think about it for a week, and then we'll be back and hopefully have a bigger positive report. Yeah. Next week is going to be our discussion of what did win and our disappointments and excitements, and uh, and hopefully we'll see... Maybe some funny stuff will happen again, like they'll accidentally announce JoJo wins, but then it'll be Ford versus Ferrari. We'll see. (laughs) I hope not. I'm I, I genuinely hope for Parasite, even though my my cynical mind tells me otherwise. Yeah. Well, uh, thanks, buddy. This has been a good show, and I'm super glad we highlighted this. Yeah, I'm excited to see you next week to talk about who won in the end. Uh, here's hoping yeah. it's our highlighted film of this week. I'm also excited to get you out here for Sonic. So <laughs> we'll see about the next week. All right, we'll see you then. All right. Take care.